So we are turning to the Word of God today, and we're going to continue our series in the book of Philippians today. We're going to continue our series in Philippians. And so I want to invite you uh, to open with me to Philippians chapter 4 today. Philippians chapter 4. And we're going to start in verse 1, Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, and we're going through verse 7 today. Apostle Paul writing to the church in Philippi, he says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eudodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I thank you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, as we spend time today walking through uh, your word, I pray that your spirit would speak to each of our hearts. Lord, that you would bring illumination uh, to our, our eyes, that you would help us to see what it is you want us to see, to hear what it is you want us to hear. And Lord, that we wouldn't be just hearers of your word, deceiving ourselves, but Lord, that we would be doers, that we would take action on what it is that you are speaking to us today. Lord, I believe that you have something for every person that is in this room today. I pray that you would help me to communicate clearly uh, so that you may speak to each heart that is here. It's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Now, as we're now getting towards the end of this book of Philippians, we find ourselves standing on the foundation of everything that's come before it as we're now into the final chapter. And we know that our passage is building on what came before it because it starts with the word, therefore. And what my grandmother, Ruth Bell, always taught me and taught me about the Bible, and I thank the Lord for my grandmother, who was a godly woman who taught me the Bible, was that she said when the word is there when the word therefore is there you have to go and find out what it is there for and so for us to understand the flow of of the thought and and where what the apostle Paul is building on I want to draw your attention to uh, two ideas that uh, have come before us in Philippians that I believe he is building upon this foundation that comes to its crescendo here in our passage today. And the first is in chapter 2, verse 9. If you'll flip back just a few verses, chapter 2, verse 9. 
And we even sang about this this morning in, in the final song that we sang. And Philippians chapter 2 talks about how Christ humbled himself, how he, he came from heaven to earth. That was one step of humility. Uh, another step of humility was that he was clothed in human flesh, that he was God become man. That's another step of humility. He was born to peasants. He was born in a manger. Another step of humility, not a noble birth, but a birth into poverty and to obscurity. Another step of humility. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He, he humbled himself by dying. Another step of humility. And finally, not just any kind of death did the Lord Jesus die, but he died the death of crucifixion. And so in this passage in Philippians 2, it talks about the humility of Christ, how he humbled himself step after step after step after step till he finally found himself in the grave. However, he did not stay in the grave. And it tells us in verse 9, therefore, because of Christ's humility, because of his obedience, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so this is the first reality that Paul is building off of, that Christ is not dead, that Christ is not in the grave, that Christ is not defeated, but rather that Jesus is alive, that Jesus rose from the dead, that Jesus didn't just rise from the dead, but he ascended into heaven that he is seated at the right hand of the Father, that God has highly exalted him, bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, and that at that name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And we sing that song today, he is Lord, he is Lord. He has risen from the dead and he is Lord. Amen. That is the first reality, Christ ruling, Christ reigning, Christ king of kings, Christ, Lord of lords, Christ not dead, Christ alive, Christ not defeated, Christ victorious. Amen. The second reality is what comes to us uh, just previously, just prior in our context, and that's in chapter 3. Right before we get to this passage in chapter 3, in verse 20, Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. We have a heavenly citizenship. And we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus is returning one day. We, we, our citizenship isn't just earthly, isn't just worldly. We're not, as believers in Christ, we're not citizens of the world. We're citizens of heaven with its own values, with its own priorities, with its own culture, if you will. And we have separated ourselves. God has separated us from the world. He's, he's called us out of the world to be holy unto him. Now we still live in the world, but we are not of the world. We are in it, but not of it. We are of heaven. We are of the above kingdom, the kingdom 
of heaven. And from that kingdom of heaven, we await our Savior who will return one day, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he returns, he will transform, it says in verse 21, our lowly body, our, our fleshly body, to be like his glorious body, his resurrected body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so here we see this power that he has to transform our bodies, to resurrect our bodies, to take what is dead and dying and decaying and to bring resurrection to it the same way that Jesus was raised from the dead on that first resurrection Sunday morning. But by that same power, he is subjecting all things to himself so that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And the power that he is using to accomplish that is that same very power that God used when he raised Christ out of the tomb. So when we look around the world today and we see a world that is dead, that is decaying, that is passing away, we don't lose hope because we serve the God of the resurrection. We serve the God that calls what is dead back to life. We serve the God that is through Christ subjecting all things to himself. And we are citizens of that kingdom, which cannot be shaken, the Bible says. The kingdoms of this earth will be shaken and are being shaken right now. But the kingdom of God marches on victorious. And you and I are a part of that kingdom. You and I have hitched ourselves to that wagon. So the world may go down in flames. But you and I are not a part of this world. Amen. We're part of the kingdom of Christ. We're part of the church that marches on. And so as a citizen of heaven awaiting the return of Christ, the question then is, what does that look like? How do we live this out? What does it look like to live as a citizen of heaven here in the world? Not of it, but in it. And that's what Paul is answering. He's answering this question. How do we live as citizens waiting for Christ to return? And here's a hint. Citizens of heaven do not live like citizens of the world. That's just a little hint for you. And so here in our text today, Paul gives four clear commands that we as citizens of heaven should follow as we await for the Lord to return. Number one, he says, stand firm. Stand firm, therefore. Number two, he says, live in unity with one another. Number two, number three, rather, is rejoice always. Rejoice always. And number four, he says, to pray with thanksgiving. Stand firm, live in unity, rejoice always, and pray with thanksgiving. And all of these, he says, are in the Lord. We do these things in the Lord. So let's walk through these quickly together. Number one, the first one he says in verse one, he says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my love, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now, as Paul writes to the Philippians, we do not know exactly what challenges that they were facing. We don't know the exact pressure that they were under. 
We don't know the, the exact temptations that, that was before them. But nevertheless, what we do know is that in every generation, in every place, in every era, that God's people are under pressure. That God's people are, are under, uh, uh, that living for God in every season, in every time, in every place, in every era, being a Christian, living for Christ, requires strength. Requires strength. It requires power. It requires fortitude. Being a Christian, living for Christ, is not for the weak-minded or the faint-hearted. It's what they used to say when I was in youth group in the 90s. You need guts. You've got to have guts if you're going to live for Christ. I don't really know what that meant, but... Living, living, I think what it meant is you, you can't be squeamish. You, you can't be cowardice. You, you, can't, you can't be afraid of, of having conflict from time to time. No, if you're going to live for Christ, you must stand firm for the Lord. And here he says to stand firm in the Lord. We stand firm in the Lord. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now again, that's not one of those bumper sticker verses. I think one day I'm just going to print a bunch of these verses on bumper stickers that people don't put on bumper stickers and coffee mugs and just, I guess I'll put them on my car because I know none of you will put them on your car, but... Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Where's the amen on that? Christ is reigning. Christ is ruling. Christ is risen. Amen, amen, amen. You will be persecuted. Ugh. It's just, it's the same Bible, friends. It's the same book. Living for Christ is not easy. And if somebody told you when you came to Christ that everything would get better and that everything would get easy. I don't know what church you were in, but you weren't in this church. I can guarantee you that. When we come to Christ, sometimes things get harder. Because when we're living in the world, we're, not, we're of no problem to the devil. But when we start living for Christ, when we say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, when we say we will raise our children in the word of God, guess what? All the fire of hell will be put on your back. To try and stop you from what God has called you to do. Living a godly life in Christ Jesus will require strength. Will require guts. <laughs> but it's not, what I want you to see today, it's not simply the external battles that we face in a world that's gone mad. If we only see that as the battlefield, we are in grave danger. Because for every believer, hear me, for every believer, there is a battle raging every day, not on the outside, but on the inside. It's not just resisting the temptation 
standing firm in the pressure from the outside. No, it's doing battle with my sinful heart on the inside, with my heart that is given towards sin, with my flesh that, is that battles through temptation. It's not just the external battle, it's our daily battle in our own hearts, our own daily battles with unbelief, our own daily battles with sin, our own daily battles with temptation. This is why in Ephesians 6.13 it says, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And he says, And having done all to stand firm, stand firm therefore. Now I'd love to take time to walk through that armor of God today. We don't have time to do it. Maybe that would be a good exercise for you and your family to do this week, Ephesians chapter 13. But God has provided for us. The point is that God has provided for us the strength and the weapons with which to fight, to stand firm in this day in which we are living. We will not be able to stand in our own power and in our own strength. It takes the power of God. It takes the armor of God that he has provided. But hear me in this. He has provided it. And we as God's people must take advantage of the grace that he has provided to us. To stand against the pressures on the outside. And to put sin to death in our own lives on the inside. Stand firm in the Lord. The second he tells us, uh, he addresses these two women who apparently are not getting along in the church. In verse 2, he says, I entreat Eudodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Sometimes as we live as citizens of heaven, sometimes the battle is not with uh, people on the outside, the world on the outside, or even uh, sin in our hearts on the inside. Sometimes, and I know this may be shocking for you to hear, sometimes we wrestle through things with our brothers and sisters in Christ. I know you might find this shocking, but sometimes Christians don't always get along. Sometimes we don't always see eye to eye. And here we don't know exactly what the issue was, what the disagreement was. But here he calls them to agree in the Lord, and he, and he says of these two women, he says, they have labored side by side with me in the gospel. Now, I just have to draw this out to you uh, just briefly. I'm not going to give a lot of commentary to it. But again, sometimes Paul is labeled with a lot of bad labels uh, because he does see distinctions between men and women in regards to ministry and in regards to ministry in the church. 
But nevertheless, it's not that women had no place in the ministry or in the gospel or in even working with him. Do you see this? Paul calls them out and he says, they have labored side by side with me in the gospel. If women are not involved in the church, if if women are not ministering in the church, the church will not accomplish its mission. Amen. So even though there are distinctions and even though there are roles and we believe in those and we think they're good and they're godly and they're healthy, however, if it just sidelines all the women in the church, then, then that is not God's plan. That is not God's purpose. That is not the heart and the purpose of our church either. Amen. We need godly women working in the gospel just as Paul did, labored side by side with me. Now, Again, we don't know the nature of their uh, disagreement, but he calls them to walk in unity. And I want to read you a passage. I'm not going to give any teaching on this because we don't have time, but I just want you to hear the force of this passage about unity from Ephesians chapter 4. Again, I would love to spend the rest of today with you, uh, but I know many of you have a date with a plate of enchiladas that you have to get to. And that's important too. Amen. Ephesians chapter 4. He says there, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. What we see in this passage is a call to humility, a call to gentleness, a call to patience, a call to bearing with one another in love, a call to striving for unity in the bond of peace, and that unity is to be based in the fact that there is one body, one spirit, one calling, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. And the point is this, for those of us who may not see eye to eye with other believers in Christ, we must remember that what binds us together is much, more, is much stronger than what would try to tear us apart. You see, the world wants to bring divisions within the church. Why? Because a church divided, a house divided cannot stand against itself. It's divide and conquer. So the world wants to divide the church over things that really don't matter. Over over things that, that have no eternal consequence. And we as God's people, we need to be wise, the Bible says. We, we need to, uh, to understand, not be ignorant of the devil's devices which is that he's trying to bring division, always trying to bring division in a church. And so we need to be very, very careful 
about what we let divide us as the people of God. Why? Because we have one faith. Not many faiths. There's one faith. One hope. One Savior. One baptism. One spirit that we all share in. These are the things that we should be united in. We need to keep our focus on these things and not the, the things that would try to tear us apart. Now, he, he says to them in this talk about uh, unity and helping these uh, people uh, get along with one another, he says to remind them that their names are written in the book of life. Now, what does that mean? What it means is that they're citizens of heaven. If your name's written in the book of life, it means you're a citizen of heaven. What Paul is saying is recognize each other as citizens of heaven. Yes, you might have differing ideas on this issue or that issue. That's fine. But can you recognize one another's citizenship? Can you recognize that you're both part of the body of Christ? Can you recognize in each other, your love for the Lord, and that if we both serve the Lord, we're both playing for the same team? Recognize one another's citizenship. And secondly, I think what he's saying by communicating this is, listen, your names are both in the book of life. That means you're going to be spending eternity with each other. Hello? You might as well figure out how to get along down here because you're going to be up there forever and ever and ever. Walk in unity with one another. In verse 5, he says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. I just have to ask, I just have to wonder. From, from the world that is watching, and, and we live in a world that is watching. When the world looks at the church, when the world looks at how we interact with one another, do they come away and say, wow, they're very reasonable. Paul says that we ought to be putting our reasonableness, our, our logic, our reason, our understanding on display. He's saying, hey guys, the world is watching. Show how reasonable you are. The point is this, that the way we, as God's people, interact with one another is part of our witness for Christ. Amen. Jesus put it this way, John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That our relationship with one another, the way we interact with one another is part of our witness. That what Jesus says will prove to the world that you follow me is the love that you have in your hearts for your fellow brother and sister in Christ. Jesus didn't say that the world will know that you are my disciples by how well you can argue with each other on Facebook. Jesus didn't say go into all the world and make really funny memes and post them on your Facebook wall. This is not, Jesus didn't say, behold, I'm sending you into the world to, to argue with everybody. No, I, I think we as God's people would be well served to not argue with one another in a public forum in front of unbelievers. I don't think that does anybody any good. 
Now, certainly the Bible says iron sharpens iron, right? So there may be a case where we need to sharpen one another, certainly. And if that is the case, take it to a private message. Slide into a DM. I've heard somebody say that the other day. I don't know what it means, but do that. Invite somebody to your house. If they live in the same city, show some hospitality. Do you know that's a a biblical command as believers, that we show hospitality? Man, if, if there's somebody who has a disagreement with or whatever, invite them over for dinner. Open the Word of God together. How can we encourage one another? Not just blasting them with memes, okay? Amen. I'll end myself on that one. I think you all feel a little conviction of the Holy Ghost on you right now is what that is. You will know, the world will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Even in our disagreements, which we will have, they have to be had in love. They have to be had in love, soaked in love. Number three, he says, so number one, stand firm in the Lord. Number two, agree in the Lord, have unity in the Lord. Number three, he says, rejoice in the Lord. That's verses four and five. Rejoice in the Lord. Always, he says, again, I will say, rejoice. You may be wondering, rejoice? Rejoice? What in the world do I have to rejoice about? And I would say nothing. Nothing. What in the world do you have to rejoice about? Nothing. You have nothing to rejoice about in the world. But in the Lord? What do you have to rejoice about? You might say, man, what do we have to rejoice about? Look at how many problems we have. Look at all of this and all of that and the war and inflation and crime and and this and this and this and this. And you're right. In the world, there's lots of problems. But this is not a surprise to us as believers who follow Jesus because Jesus clearly taught that this would happen. What did he say? In the world, you will have tribulation. In the world, tribulation. In the world, problems. In the world, issues. But he went on to say, take heart, I have overcome the world. So again, in the world, problems. In the world, issues. In the world, tribulation. But we don't rejoice in the world. We rejoice in the Lord. The the Lord that we await from heaven. The Lord that is ruling and reigning right now. The Lord that is King of kings and Lord of lords. The Lord that, that is King of, the, city, of, the, of the, the country that we are a part of, the citizen of heaven. And again, I will say, rejoice. And he says not to just rejoice sometimes or not to just rejoice when you feel like it, not to just rejoice when, when the, the Spirit moves you in just such the right way when we're singing the right song. No, rejoice always in the Lord. And again, I will say, rejoice. We have something to rejoice about in the Lord. We have something to celebrate. There's the victory of the empty tomb. There's salvation. There's redemption. There's adoption into God's family. There's freedom from sin. There's victory over death. There's sanctification in our hearts. There's union with Christ. There's the return of our King. We have something to rejoice about always. Always. 
So no matter what is going on out there, when we come in here, we rejoice. When we come in here, we lift up our voice. When we come in here, we praise our mighty King who is victorious over all. Amen. We rejoice in the Lord always. Always. Yeah, in the world we have tribulation. Yeah. But Christ overcame the world. That is what he said. Past tense. The world is fading away. The kingdom of God will take its place. And in that we can rejoice. We can rejoice. And so number four, he goes on to say that we should pray with thanksgiving. We see that in verses six and seven. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's interesting that Paul begins this section on prayer by telling us not to be anxious. Not to be anxious. Now there's opportunities for anxiety everywhere, as we just talked about. If you want to be anxious today, you can be very anxious. But here he says, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. You know, there's been study after study after study after study after study that has shown a direct correlation between being anxious and your social media usage. It's like a direct line. The more you use social media, the more you have screen time, there's a direct correlation between anxiety and social media usage. Direct. Study after study after study after study. But here he draws a a direct line. Paul draws a direct line from not being anxious to prayer. Not being anxious to prayer. Prayer. And so if you're here today and you find yourself riddled with anxiety, I have to ask you the question, how much are you praying? How much time are you spending in prayer? Every day? If you find yourself battling anxiety of any kind, if you find yourself being overwhelmed with anxiety and then into the, the depression era area of your life, How much time are you spending on social media and screen time versus how much time you're spending in prayer? Paul here draws the direct connection. And if social media usage increases anxiety, which it does, and we are commanded by God to not be anxious... Should not therefore that lead us to conclude that I need to drastically curtail my whatever activity I'm doing that's causing me so much anxiety? There's a direct connection between the amount of time you spend in prayer and then here he goes from anxiety to peace. Anxiety to 
peace. And the God of peace, the, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If you need more peace in your life, it means you need more prayer in your life. And what this is doing as we shift from screen time, which fills our hearts with anxiety, and we, we turn the phone off and bury it in a drawer and go devote times to prayer, we are unplugging from the world and we are plugging in to God. As we turn off the 24-hour news cycle... And we get off the lazy boys and we get on our knees before God. We are unplugging from the world and we are plugging into God. And prayer takes what we cannot control and it places it in the hand of the one who is in total control. The God who is sovereign over all. It says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Listen, what is it that you are anxious about? What is it that is causing you worry and fear? Take it to the Lord in prayer. Take it to the Lord. Don't, don't just spin out of control. And what about this? And what about this? And what about... No, 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 stop. Get on your knees. Cast your cares upon him, the Bible says, because he cares for us. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Take it to the one who is in control of all things, who is sovereign over all things. You see, we are weak, but he is strong. We are powerless to control the events and the outcomes of our lives, but he is all-powerful. We grow tired and we, we grow weary, but God never tires God never sleeps. God never slumbers. He's always, he's always watching. He's the one who has the whole world in his hands. We lack wisdom and understanding. Our perspective is so limited. But we go to the one who is all-knowing and all-wise. And he says to do it with thanksgiving. In everything, in every circumstance, go to the Lord in prayer with thanksgiving. You know, giving thanks is so powerful. Giving thanks is so powerful. And I love that we live in a country that has a day that's dedicated to thanksgiving. I think that's wonderful. I also think it's wonderful that somehow we combine that with eating as much food as possible. I also enjoy that. Why not? But hey, for the believer, every day should be thanksgiving. That's, that's my motto anyway. Not, not by, by the way that we eat, but by the posture of our heart. We shouldn't just give thanks to God once a day. We should thank the Lord often for the blessings that he's given in our lives. If you will just stop and think, maybe you're full of fear, maybe you're full of anxiety, but if you will just stop and think for a moment of all that you have to be thankful for, it shifts your perspective off of your problems of which we have many, and it puts it on God when we live in thanksgiving. We have a lot to be thankful for. 
Oftentimes at our dinner table, we go around and we spend time having each one list something that they are thankful to God for, not just thankful to the universe or to whatever. No, we are thankful to God. We go around and each family member tells us something that they're thankful for that evening. It stirs our hearts. It stirs our affections for the Lord. Thanksgiving begins to, to, to put our, 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 the posture of our heart in the right direction. Listen, we all have something to be thankful for. We all have something to be thankful for every day. Yeah, there's a lot of problems. Yeah, we got a lot of issues. Yeah, we go through stuff in life. But we got to keep our eyes on the goodness of God. The one that the Bible says every good and perfect gift has come down from him who is the father of lights. Everything good you ever experience in your life, you can directly draw a straight line back to God and his blessing. Everything good, everything wonderful is a gift from God, is a gift from him. We need to be thankful to him. And again, verse 7, as we wrap up today, is a promise is a promise. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It surpasses understanding. What does that mean? It means there may be chaos around you. You may be going through a hard time, a difficult time, a crazy season. Nevertheless, God's peace is guarding your heart. It surpasses even, how in the world do I have peace right now? Listen, I don't know. It doesn't make sense. But God is in control. And he is guarding my heart and my mind, guarding our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And I believe that this is a conditional promise. It's a conditional promise if we will unplug from the world and unplug from the things that cause anxiety in our lives and instead put our focus back on God, going to him in prayer and thanksgiving, taking our requests to him. The result of living that kind of life is the peace of God, which passes understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Your heart, which describes your affections, that when you are, are going before the Lord regularly in prayer and regularly with thanksgiving, it turns your heart and your affection back towards God and not to all of the other things that the world would have us chase after. And our minds and our thoughts, it renews our thoughts, gives us good and right and godly thinking. And so where are you directing your affections? Where are you directing your thoughts? Are they th towards Christ or are they towards the world? We are citizens of heaven. We are citizens of heaven. Our affections and our thoughts need to be directed towards the one who rules and reigns from heaven and who is returning one day. And when we do that, he will guard our hearts and fill our lives with peace, even in the midst of uncertain times. Now, this is one portrait Paul has given us today of what, a, what it looks like to live as a citizen of heaven of course, this is not all that is involved, and we'll keep unpacking this as we move forward through the rest of Philippians in the final weeks. But of these four imperatives, I would just submit to you, of the four of them, where do you need to see growth the most? 
standing firm in your faith, living in unity with other believers, rejoicing always in the Lord. We're spending more time with the Lord in prayer. I believe that this is an area that in, in every single one of these areas that there are places where all of us can grow. And so as we come to the table today to take of the Lord's Supper, I want to encourage you, let's come and do business with the Lord. Let's ask for his help in these areas as we endeavor to grow with him. And let's live as citizens of his kingdom. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to our hearts today, for instructing us. Lord, we want to live as citizens of your kingdom. Lord, this earth, this world and its desires and temptations and activities, Lord, they, they cling so closely to us at times. But Lord, we've come here today gathered in your name to worship you, to exalt you, to take our eyes off of those things and put them back on you. I pray that through our time of worship and our time in your word and now our time of taking of your supper, remembering your death, burial, and resurrection, that you would reorient our hearts as citizens of your kingdom, that you would help us to live standing firm, living in unity, full of joy, doing battle on our knees in prayer. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.